Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 19. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, and today we get the privilege of chatting with a really, really smart and really, really kind professor with, I would say, a really cool Australian accent, Dr. John Kleinig. I was introduced to Dr. Kleinig first through his writings, one of my favorite being his books, Grace Upon Grace. And then I had the opportunity recently to get my hands on his new book, Wonderfully Made, A Protestant Theology of the Body. And I devoured it like a complete theological nerd, which I am. Every sentence that Dr. Kleinig writes in anything that he writes is dripping with pure gold. So Dr. Kleinig, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. And since you are in Australia, it's a very different time um, than I am recording here in the United States. So thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a joy to be with you and to be engaged with your people over the other side of the globe. Thank you. I apologize for my accent. I speak in tongues. We might need some interpretation. (laughs) So I give you permission to ask me to put into American English what I put in Australian English. I see. But it's a joy to do this and to speak (laughs) on uh, this topic. Thank you. Dr. Kleinig, I am not sure how you feel about people writing in in books in general and then people writing in the margins in in your own books, but I'm just going to give myself away and tell you that I am either a highlighter or an underliner of books when I read. And in your book, I underlined in pencil, and I think I underlined more than half of the sentences that you wrote, which I think uh, after a while that that method kind of becomes... (laughs) a little bit useless, but Dr. Kleining, needless to say, I, I am a fan of yours and your writing, and it is a privilege to get to talk to you, who, whether you would admit it or not, are one of the most highly esteemed Lutheran theologians of our day. So it is such an honor. Would you begin um, by introducing yourself to our listeners and also telling us what led you to write your newest book, Wonderfully Made, A Protestant Theology of the Body? Sure. I'm 79 years old. They're the secrets out, the big O80 coming this next year. So I've been retired from active service now for 12 years, full-time active service, but my wife tells me I'm as busy as ever. But one of the things that's enabled me to do is to do what I've always had to do on the run, which is to write. Mm. And in writing, I have a passion for communicating popular theology not for specialists or not to dumb it down, but to write to for ordinary lay people who have basic knowledge of the Bible, who are catechized, and for pastors, busy pastors, who don't want theological tomes and are not interested in academic discussions. So that's my particular joy. And I spend a lot of time counseling people. I, even though my technical area of expertise is Old Testament theology, and I have taught the Bible generally. My heart is really with pastoral theology, and my basic conviction that if theology isn't pastoral, it's not worth any. So all theology must be pastoral. And it's for that reason 
that I got involved with a wonderful organization in the US and helped to found it actually. It's called Doxology and it's to offer pastoral care for help for pastors and their families. What has appalled me and also Hal Zenkbal, the other person who founded this, and Bev Yankee, who's one of the leading lights, is that nobody pastors pastors. And even worse than that, nobody pastors pastors' wives. They are very much neglected. So I've had a been a teacher of theology at, first of all, Luther Seminary. It's now Australian Lutheran College for many years. And now um, retired from there, but which gives me the privilege to do what I like doing best, which is writing, communicating, talking like this to ordinary people, not scholars, and also counseling people and encouraging people in what are very troubled, difficult times. And that leads me a sort of a, a link to the reason I wrote this book. Now, and it, it might be very helpful to you get to see the full setting of this, you know, what, what lies behind it. First of all, there's the long story. Yes, I'm interested in long stories. <laughs> there's the long story and short story. <laughs> we'll take the long story. It's, oh, you're almost after my hat. <laughs> uh, 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 the long story, usually the, the rule of communication is you start off with the short story and then go to the long story. Oh, oh okay, okay. Well, let's do, th let's follow the rules then. No, no, no. I want to break the rule with communication <laughs> and with you. Uh, first of all, the long story. Uh, behind this book lies um, something that has concerned me all my life. But I'll pick up, I, I grew up on a farm and my father, very down to earth, very devout man. But a life on the farm means that I don't live in my head. I'm a practical, down to earth, physical person. That's my cast of mind. That's my personality. And when I started theology, doing academic theology, that's, but it appalled me that the impression was being given that the Christian faith basically had to do with abstract ideas, ideas about God, ideas about the world, ideas. Now there are ideas and they're important and I would not uh, be a pastor and I wouldn't be a seminary lecturer if I didn't think, but the danger is that we lose track of a simple fact. And that's this, that our lives, lives in the body, from the womb to the tomb, mm. even if we're not Christians, we live in the body. And that, that is the framework the, uh, for everything that we are and everything that we do. And that's the place where God engages in our bodily life. But also the spiritual life doesn't take us out of the body but is life in the body. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the, the interest in the body is something that's always been with me. And one of the things that attracted me to the Christian life and the Christian walk was the you know, the teaching of the incarnation that God, God's son becomes a human being and engages with us 
in bodily terms. And so for one of the first things I ever wrote as a young graduate pastor was a, a popular article called Matter Matters. Mm. Matter Matters. Yeah, I, then I've always come back to this question and because of uh, my interest in the body, I've also interested in physical face-to-face engagement with people. I found the, the, the last year and a half, even despite this kind of engagement, most frustrated because I like being face-to-face with people. That's what's most precious about being us being human beings. And so I'm interested in the physical side of worship, the face-to-face stuff. And I'm interested in the sacraments because they keep us physically grounded and stop me. I mean, the danger for me is that I go off in a mind trip, go up in my head and live in my head, not in my body. But this, this grounds me and grounds me with people round about me. No, it's also one of the reasons I like marriage because it keeps me grounded uh, <laughs> in a very real physical way. But uh, given that, this is the long story, it has, I've always looked for an opportunity to be able to, if you like, a, a, give a popular presentation. There's lots of academic stuff which deal about this issue, but for ordinary people, just to affirm them and to help them to understand this dimension of their spiritual lives, that their spiritual lives are bodily lives. Okay. It's life in the body. It means being a father or mother, wife or husband, engaging in physical activities like cooking and cleaning and all the other stuff that we do, caring for the world. But one of the things that's, 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 that's going back far enough, but in recent times, one of the things that's bothered me as a human being, but as a pastor, is the problems that people have with the body. The, and they, fo- they focus in recent times on the whole issue of body image. Now, that's been aggravated by the electronic media and Facebook. Facebook has a lot to answer for here. So much so that it used to be that most women were dissatisfied with their bodies, their physical appearances. But now it's men as well. The figures are shocking. That you know, if you ask the question, if you could trade your body in for another one of your own choice, would you? And almost everybody says yes. And it's yes, it's a strange paradox because on the one hand, we are obsessed with the body and in many, many different ways. And yet on the other hand, we're dissatisfied with our real bodies. And this is not just a, a psychological, mental, physical thing, but it, it also has a spiritual dimension. My concern sort of came to a head or not came to head, but were dramatized by three sweatshirts that I saw just over two, three years ago, three years ago. Okay. The the first one was one that's very common, which is my body, my choice. I know what people are saying there, but that, that embodies, if you like, the attitude of not just women, and not just feminists, but most people, my body, my choice. And that's a lie. <laughs> uh, the second one is more provocative. And I've only seen this once, whereas the other one I've seen lots of times. 
and it, 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 it caught me short. It was a uh, woman was wearing it and had quite a lot of text on it. Your body may be a temple, but mine is an amusement park. Um. Your body may be a temple, but mine is an amusement park. Poor woman. Poor people. Yeah. The third one, even more alarming than that one, is, and it took me a while to realize what it was on about. It was worn by a rather ample and very attractive young woman. She had, this is not me, exclamation mark. I see. This is not me. Hmm. Now, if you like, the Christian message is, this is me. Hmm. There's more to me than this, but this is me. And there is a kind of uh, theological, spiritual understanding, which is denies the body and says, basically, spiritually speaking, my body is not me. It hmm. uh, disconnects the soul spirit from the body. So for those sets of reasons and many others, because in my pastoral care for people always coming back to things to do with the body. And it seems to me that almost all the problems, the big ticket issues in our society and in the church have to do with the body in some way. Mm. Big picture. Now, the more immediate cause, I've very seldom written anything except that I've been asked to write it. And the book then is the result of a request. It came about four years ago mm. at a good time. Uh, and it came from three LCMS pastors, Helsing Day and Will Whedon attended a conference that had been called by Josh McDowell, a great apologist for the Christian faith. And it was on pornography. And the question was, how do we as Christians deal with the plague of pornography in our society? Mm. And the alarming thing that whereas it used to be that pornography was a male obsession, it's become, according to figures, and I have no way of knowing whether it's right or wrong, but I do know from counseling women that it is a problem. More and more women being hooked. Mm. Now, they, the conference was a bit disappointing, according to them, except for one paper. And because it tended to be uh, very narrow and moralistic, and said, you know, basically, the, the, the impression was, of course, we all agree pornography is a bad thing. How can we stop people from accessing pornography and scare them out of accessing pornography? Not very helpful in any way, let alone helpful pastorally, because it doesn't see what lies behind it. But there was one paper that was given by a Catholic theologian who tackled the issue from the angle of the former Pope, John Paul II, wonderful work called The Theology of the Body. That sounds familiar. Theology mm -hmm. of the Body. And he said, basically, unless you take and his thing, unless you begin with an understanding of not just a physical understanding and a psychological and social understanding body, but unless you start off with a theological, spiritual understanding of the body, 
and of sexuality as part of that, you won't be able to, to we won't as a church be able to deal with this issue. Okay, so after that conference, they debriefed and they agreed that it would be helpful to ask somebody to have to present a full biblical and Lutheran understanding of the book and, and of pornography in that frame. So as a result of that, they recommended and I was asked to write this book, but the focus was to be on pornography. I gave it a lot of thought and got back to them and said, I'd only agree to doing this if I, the focus wasn't primarily on pornography. Hmm. Because I don't think that's the real issue. Or it is the real issue, but we won't be able to deal with it unless we deal with it in that full biblical way. And what we need more than anything else is to understand pornography, which is a, um, not a, a new thing. You know, people in the ancient world did it in their own way, but we have new media to, to promulgate pornography. But I'd only tackle it if I could tackle it in a broad biblical framework of the understanding of our bodies from God's point of view theologically, because sex and the pornography has to do with our, the sexual nature of our bodies is not just a physical thing. In fact, it's far more, and the data has come in, it's far more to do with the mind, emotions, imagination, uh, desire. It has to do with not just physical intimacy, but it has to do with complete intimacy, personal intimacy. It's far broader. And my basic critique, and this might sound paradoxical, of pornography is that it's not explicit enough because it, it deliberately ignores most of what sex is all about, if I can put it that way, and what happens when a man and a woman involved in sexual intercourse. It, it, it's one dimensional and it's because it's one dimensional, it's fake, it's phony, it's false, but also very powerful and very dangerous. But the, porn, the issue of pornography has to do with a full understanding of sexuality and what's involved. And the other thing that I, in writing, that I would accept the request to do this, that I didn't want to go into academic mode. I didn't want to go into negative mode, but I wanted to engage positively. And so I said, I'd only um, do this if I could do it in positive terms. And I, I've always been, I've always been interested in Luther's own approach. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Okay, well, you see it in the catechisms. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that of all the commandments, the one which only has a positive is the sixth commandment. You know that Luther begins all the second table of commandments, we should fear and love God so that we don't do this and we do do this. Luther doesn't go into the don'ts and he only goes into the do. 
Hmm. And he says, and basically he said, look, uh, there's no need to do that because everybody knows. Oh, interesting. So just for our for our listeners, the sixth commandment is it, you shall not commit adultery. And then do you want to see how good my memory is for my catechism class? I'd let you. OK, you give me your version. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, my my American English version may be different, but if I'm remembering right, Luther says, "What does this mean?" And he says, "The sixth commandment meaning is we we lead sexually pure lives in what we say and do, and husbands and wives love and honor each other." Is that is that correct? Yep. Yes. In the version that I did it, which is less inclusive, at least by the appearance, we should fear and love God, that we uh, lead a chaste. Mm. Now, there's a word that's gone out of fashion. Yes. A chaste and decent life. Even decent is not the best translation. It has to do with a disciplined life. Chaste and decent life. And each love and honor is the spouse, his or her spouse. Positive, that we lead, and it's a very important word. The key thing word is the key word is they're chaste. And honor, love, honor. They're the, they're the three key words. Now, that's the small catechism. Another passage <laughs> is in the large catechism. I've got it here. It's okay. from memory. This, this has to do with the sixth commandment. Luther has to say this. Now, he's talking about the importance of chastity. And chastity is different to virginity. I find particularly in North America, people get this confused, that chastity and virginity are the same thing. But that's another story. He says this, I say these things in order that our young people may be led to acquire as desire for married life and know that it is a blessed and God-pleasing walk of life. Then he unpacks that. If this were the case, then God would add his blessing and grace so that they might have joy and happiness in their married life. Just joy and happiness in married life. I remember a little incident some years ago where a daughter of very good friends of ours who is, had gone through Lutheran primary and secondary school, and we got chatting about, for some reason, about sexuality. And I mentioned in passing, just, oh, the sixth commandment covers that. And she looked completely blank. Of sixth commandment? I said, I guess. I said, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, there's one there that deals with sex. And I said to her, do you remember what it says about sex? And she said that God disapproves of it. Wow. Now, this is not from outside the church we really expect it. The, the, the impression is that God is a killjoy, hmm. and particularly a sexual killjoy. Uh, Luther's emphasis is on joy and happiness in married life. And then he goes on, wherever marital chastity, the focus is not just chastity. First of all, he talks about chastity in general for married and unmarried people. Marital chastity is to be maintained uh, wherever it is to be maintained, it is above all essential that husband and wife live together in love and harmony, cherishing each other wholeheartedly and with 
perfect fidelity or faithfulness. This is one of the chief is of making, I would have expected him to say marriage. He means that attractive and desirable, but he says making chastity attractive and desirable under such conditions. Chastity always follows spontaneously without any command. Hmm. So I wanted to uh, focus on chastity because that's who teaches about chastity these days. <laughs> and it's there's been trouble in the US. You know, a great damage was done by those pledges that young people took about 10, 20 years about chastity pledges. The data's come in and most of them are totally and utterly counterproductive. And they confuse chastity and virginity. Yeah. Right? So the basic focus was presenting the issues to do with pornography, amongst other things, in a positive way. And I wanted to focus on a, a grateful acknowledgement of, chast of sexuality and marriage and chastity as gifts from God, and to present in such a way that it was desirable and beautiful. So I speak about the beauty of chastity, the beauty of marriage, despite all the uh, obvious issues. Because I've seen that no matter if I wag my feet on sexual matters, ears go shut. But if I speak about the mystery of uh, marriage, the beauty of chastity and God's good gift of sex that he's given to us for our enjoyment and that he is pleased with us when we enjoy the gift of sexual intercourse or our sexuality. So that was the origin of the book. That's okay. the short one. <laughs> but even though the, the, the stimulus for it was had to do with pornography, your hearers might be disappointed to hear that only four pages deal with that. Yeah, I've, I was going to say. In case they want to get up and go straight there, 171 to 174, because okay. it's interesting, which shows that we are on, a, a, there's a problem here. Quite a number of people that I gave, and I wanted to uh, get their uh, feedback from them. Some pastors and some lay people gave copies of the book or electronically or in print. Guess where they went first of all to? They looked at the title page. And they went to the two chapters that had to do with sexuality. Hmm. Now, I'm happy, I'm, I'm not cross about that, but it does show that there's a real issue here and not outside the church, it's big out there because we don't know what, despite with our obsession with sex, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. There's nothing, no other area of human behavior and human life that's more problematic than sex. And there's no other area where there's such frustration hmm. as in this area. Now, for people sitting on the edge of their seats, yeah. uh, wishing that you would define chastity against virginity, if you had to, in, in one sentence, 
define chastity and then in just one sentence define virginity, what would you say? Quite simply, chast- uh, 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 virginity has to do with sexual inexperience. And you can, whereas uh, chastity has to do with sexual purity. Hmm. Sexual purity. And that's harder because you, you, you're either, once you've lost your virginity, you can't get it back. There's no operation to restore mm-hmm. virginity, but chastity can be regained after it's lost. Mm-hmm. And you can have somebody who is a chaste virgin or a chaste virgin. Mm-hmm. You can have unchaste married people as well as chaste married people. So sexual chastity has to do with sexual purity. And that's okay, that's a big issue, but I don't need to unpack it because we instinctively know about clean and unclean. Hmm. Yeah. And and we feel like, you know, I can't define, you know, say, John, define sexual uh, chastity for me. I, 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 you know, in abstract terms, I can't do it. And said, I, you know, it's just that you know it from experience. That makes you feel dirty huh. and makes you feel bad about yourself and bad about the other person and makes you feel bad uh, about what you've done. Hmm. But so, in one, one way, the book is about in, in praise of chastity in its fullest sense. And how chastity points to God's desire to so that we are totally pure and share in his holiness. Mm. We all, uh, it's interesting, I don't know, it, I'm sort of focusing on one issue here, but it's quite, it's interesting how uh, people instinctively are drawn to the whole cause of ecology and climate change and so, so on. Mm. The way it's been sold, and it's brilliant, is in terms of green is clean. And they talk about pollution, Hmm. which means dirty. So it's once you frame the issue of ecological imbalance in terms of clean and unclean, no, it doesn't need explaining. Ah, It will get it straight away. So it... We know in our own bodies what's clean and unclean. We're, as human beings, it's one of the marks of our humanity. Hmm. Well, and That's you, what I wanted to tap into. Yeah. Well, I have so many questions, Dr. Kleinig, about so many things. I, I, and I want to say, too, to our, our listeners, what Dr. Kleinig said is true. And he said on pages 171 to 174, he talks about pornography, but the 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 book is laid out so beautifully and it is so accessible for any reader just as dr kleinig was hoping and truly just as i think martin luther is too he writes for the the lay person who's been catechized and anyway so the the beginnings of your book talk about how god has made um us and our bodies and you know what that means for us spiritually and bodily and how there's, you know, the the distinctions that our current culture make aren't so helpful. But then you go on and you have one chapter devoted to sexuality, one chapter devoted to 
marriage specifically, and, and then another chapter devoted to essentially what I would consider, you know, vocations or how to serve our neighbors in our in our bodies. So it's it's an incredibly practical book, and where there's no way that this short time that we get to talk, we're going to be able to delve into all of that. But I will also praise you for the fact that in the very beginning um, of your book, you make mention of how you find it not helpful to provide, you know, commentary on the negative um, aspects of our social climate, but rather you find it more helpful to provide a positive alternative and to show the beauty that is living a chaste life, as you have mentioned. And I, you know, it echoes the heart that you have to be pastoral. And I so appreciate that point of view. So listeners, when you pick up this book, it will be refreshing. It will be comforting. It will be enlightening. And and you will feel empowered to be able to go out and talk about this and and then go out and and be a better neighbor and care for your neighbors in their bodies. And it's beautiful. So I guess as a side note, because we don't we don't do advertisements or commercials here, but where can people find your book, Dr. Kleinig? Uh, it's published by Lexham Press. Originally, I wrote it for an LCMS Lutheran audience, but I won't go, that's another story. Then uh, the people at Lexham, which is an evangelical, orthodox evangelical press, and basically through Hal Zenkbal, who's published there, got hold of it and said, look, it'd be a shame if this was just locked up in the Lutheran ghetto. Mm. So it's... it's, it's, it's if this is for the whole church. Yeah. And so they publish it. So Lexham Press, you can get on Amazon, any of the reputable. I can tell you where it's cheapest here in Australia. I don't know <laughs> where it's cheapest for you. But all, the, all you need to do is Google it. Yeah. But it, just to pick up you know, the positive thing, you know, the, the motto that I pursued is, and I have to remind myself in what seemed to be dark days, is a little motto, which is, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Mm-hmm. I remember reading that in your book. Yes. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? It's a practical thing. So to say, it's better for me to present the Christian faith and my convictions in positive terms rather than stand in judgment over other people as if I am a paragon of virtue. It's not just sexual virtue, but all other virtue too, to present it in positive terms. And in sexual terms, it means that it's, I will achieve much more by being a chaste man and treating women and men with great love and dignity and respect. And that by my own marriage and love, the way I love my wife, cherish my wife, I will do more to promote God's view on sexuality than any any other way. Hmm. So it's not a theoretical thing. You model it in physical terms, hmm. in an actual marriage. I, I don't know about you, but I have certain models of couples, people yeah. who, you know, if you would say, people say, well, what, you know, Forget about the world's picture of marriage, but if you want to understand what uh, marriage is all about and the God's designed it for, I can't do it in abstract terms because it's almost impossible. I, you can, to some extent, do it in a novel. 
although people don't do that very much now anymore. But I say there's those two people that I look up to and aspire to be like them. And that's so I, I see them as models. And this is God's design. He, you know, we are made in his image so that we reflect him in some way. So I model on them. And at my stage in life, it's slightly different to, you know, when I was a young teenager or young married man, I look now at old couples and whose marriages are still fresh and right. And sometimes it, it's despite the physical dangers. I think of one of my best friends whose wife is basically, it's a wonderful, wonderful woman, but whose wife is basically bedridden and he has to care for her with great difficulty. Now, there's many parts of the marriage which are dysfunctional from a human point of view. But as far as I'm concerned, if you want to see the essence of marriage, just pop in on them and see the way they still love each other. Mm. Oh. Uh, that lights a candle. And anybody who has a experience of that never forgets. And that leaves a permanent imprint and helps them now, young people, when they see that, then uh, helps them negotiate the difficulties in the middle of their lives and in old age where we become a bit crap in a physical point of view. But in some ways, with the decay of the body, uh, the body comes into its own. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book too, which is, is worth un unpacking as well. And I mean, our listeners will just have to read for themselves yeah. at a very basic fundamental level if we're talking about the positives how does god view our bodies yes if i can I'll lead that into just from another point of view and more mm -hmm. easily it's to explain the title uh yeah because most people maybe recognize that a wonderfully made it refers to Psalm 139, and there's, there's, and there's a sentence there in uh, verse 14. The, the psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, uh, and the whole body, I mean, the whole body of the psalm deals with that being made fearful, amazingly, awesomely, and wonderfully. Miraculously. The thing is that, and, and uh, we, it's so obvious, and yet obviously, uh, is that we don't see ourselves as we are. I don't see my body. God has constructed me so that I can see other people's bodies, but I can't see myself, even though I have a picture of myself. The only way I can do that is by looking in a mirror. And you all know mirror flattens it out, turns things around. So I see your face, but it's switched around and so on. It's flat. We don't see ourselves as we are. Other people see more of us than we do. And none of us sees ourselves entirely, ourselves entirely. I only see, and other people only see me the way I am now, but can't see the way I was in my mother's womb and the way I will be in eternity. No one sees the full me. No human being does. And no one just doesn't see my whole body, but also doesn't see the full me. 
no one sees the way I think and feel and and no one sees, if you like, the whole of me. And I don't, particularly I don't see the whole of me. I have some idea of where I am now and some memory of where I was, but that's distorted. <laughs> and it's very often attached to other people and their memories of me. I had a mm. wonderful experience of connecting with a school friend yesterday whom we hadn't catched, caught up for a once, long time, but just to talk together and to reminisce brought back not only him and his life to me, but also a part of me that he reflected back to me. Now, the only per person who sees us completely is God. And he, he doesn't see us, if you like, critically, but appreciatively. Uh, mm. Not just for what we are, but what he wants, what he wants to make of us. And he sees the whole of me. So the title of it is, is wonderfully made because I, what I wanted to do is to get people to see their bodies the way God sees them. From God's point, and, and and not just no a little bit of what God sees, but all of what God sees and tells us. And the only way we have of knowing that is in the Bible, and the full picture of the human body that Jesus, that God gives us in the Bible through His Word. So it is it, it it has to do with a view of the body, vision of the body, but the way God sees our bodies, not as they are, not just in themselves. But the way he sees our bodies, the way they are closely connected with our souls, who we are, the way they are connected with minds, hearts, spirit, feel like dimensions of our life. And here I'm a bit of a disclaimer. I originally had the title wonderfully made on seeing our bodies as God sees them. Now, for some reason, that scared the marketing boys. <laughs> I don't understand why. And they, <laughs> marketing always wanted to position a product over against something else. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, why not call it? And I, I argued about this, but I lost the argument. I, I, I've learned now not to get into arguments, debates with the marketing guys. Um, <laughs> Because in some ways it's it's down to earth, and you know they see it from you know the sales point of view. Mm. Uh, but they wanted to contrast it with John Paul's theology of the body, and hence Protestant. Now it's not a Protestant theology of the Bible body; it's a biblical theology of the body, and I agree with much more of what the Pope says than disagree with him. Yeah. And that's, that could be another whole book. But I, did, I felt that there's whole parts that he doesn't touch on. And he would be the first person to say, look, this is just, he's dealing with issues that he faced as a leader in the church at the time when he uh, did this work. So the theology of the body, well, I'm not really interested in theology of the body. I'm interested in a vision of the body and God's way of seeing our bodies. And for us, understand. If I had to have a, a subtitle, if I couldn't have on seeing our bodies as God sees them, the other alternative was on understand our bodies in as God does. Hmm. 
So that's deeper understanding. It has to do with insight and so on. But it's a it's a vision of the body. And that's critical because that's where the issue lies, is people's attitude, their view of their bodies. And the more, I'm convinced that the more people drift away from biblical Christianity in the church and outside the church, the more problem they'll have in actually appreciating their bodies hmm. uh, and enjoying their bodies as a good gift from God. Which is kind of counterintuitive to, you know, what would you, what you would ask just anybody on the street about how, you know, Christians seeing our bodies, just as that young girl did when you were talking to her about the sixth commandment. Yep. Well, you mean God cares about our bodies and God cares about what we do with them. There's no one who should or does more than the Christian care about how God sees. Yes, and values the body. I mean, one of the things, as you know, that I emphasize is that it's not that we uh, uh, Christians don't, uh, that we um, shouldn't value bodies highly, but we don't value them highly enough. <laughs> God values them highly. My, critic, my criticism of the society we live in is not that it overvalues the body, but it undervalues and undersells the human body. And it's amazing, amazing nature and complexity. I have two sons who are medical specialists and get a bit of a glimpse from them as a, a, into what, just from a physical point of view, how fearfully and wonderfully made our human bodies, from a purely rational point of view, they shouldn't work. And it's a wonder um, that they do, and we do, as they actually do. Talk, talk this out with me here. You're talking about, you mentioned the soul, yes. the body, the mind, our thoughts. These are all aspects of who we are. And so... Say I have this piece of clay in my yes. hands yes. and we are the clay. God can see us from every aspect. So is it right to say my mind and body are two aspects? My soul, my spirit are aspects and God sees all of that as a, as a whole. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. The, the thing is that there's no one set of terms, quite deliberately, I think, to describe uh, the whole of us, hmm. the way God deals with us. So, for example, it, you, know, you get sort of dichotomies or opposites. Like yeah. People talk about, philosophers talk about the question of the relationship between the mind and the body. But the data's come in that you can't, you can distinguish the mind from the body, but you can't separate it. Our bodies are mindful bodies. Our mind is, is part of our brain. I mean, that mind in a narrow sense now, thinking is a physical activity. So from one point of view, you can distinguish between them. From another point of view, they aspects are two different things. So, so. When, if you get that kind of antithesis opposite, the body has to do with our outer nature, the mind has to do with our inner nature, okay? So inner aspect, you can't separate. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. we distinguish then bet between the body and the heart. We do. And we by heart, we think in terms of emotions. 
And that's not wrong. But it's interesting that Buckable uses heart because it 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 it, it bridges both the physical and the mental. The heart is your physical organ. But it also has to do with it's not just the pump that pumps blood around the body, but also uh, is closely connected with in in biblical thinking with thinking and imagining and above uh, feeling and desiring. So that's another way I'm looking at it. But one of the most basic distinctions is between body and soul. Once again, you can't separate them, but you can mm. distinguish them. My body is what I am. Includes, you know, that's very crudely because it, there's more to me than what I am physically. My soul is who I am. Myself, my identity, what makes me a person rather than a thing. Mm. I am a thing. Yeah. But I'm more than just a thing. I am a person and I'm made for personal interaction with people. So you can distinguish between body and soul. And soul itself can be, in, in, in Hebrew and Greek, soul just has to do with, the literally, has to do with breath, life breath. What makes me a living being? But normally, it, it's in our common usage, it's, it's who I am. And then you can distinguish between soul and spirit. Once again, spirit has a very wide range of reference. So, for example, Paul in chapter 5 says, gives a blessing, 5 verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you completely holy, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Uh, you see the spirit, soul, body. So there's a distinction between spirit and soul. In some cases, it's they're identical. You know, they refer to both. But the spirit has to do with me as a living being that's kept alive by God's spirit. Hmm. So it has to do with that part of me that links me with God. That as a person, I'm a person with a difference. I'm a person like the angels who don't have bodies and are spirits. So it has to do with me as a living, animated being that's kept alive by God's spirit. Hmm. And so from that point of view, when I die, my body dies. This is from a human point of view. But my spirit is lives on. It doesn't die. It's eternal because it's part of God and he keeps it alive even when my body ceases to be alive. So the way I, the, I look at it and it helps me is to see all the way, you know, we can say there's, we have these aspects or various parts. Yeah, that's quite valid and it's commonsensical, but all of them are parts of one unified whole. Hmm. And God interacts with all aspects of my life. Yeah. And he, 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 uh, he sees the way the whole of it belongs together. And spiritually speaking, as well as even just humanly speaking and for human health, our bodies work together best of all when, they, when the whole of us is integrated. Yeah. 
So if we split off our minds from our bodies or our feelings from what we do, if we try and disconnect our identity, our self, from our bodies, we run into trouble. We cease to be the people that God wants us to be and has made us to be. I don't know. Is that helpful? Does it's I find it incredibly helpful. And and to to some extent, I think it's it's freeing for us to be able to say this is a helpful way of describing an aspect of us rather than compartmentalizing or putting into certain categories things that, well, God doesn't see us that way. Right. Yes, exactly. So then going off of that, God, especially in relation, of course, to the body, would say, I have created this body. body. It's fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together. Yeah, in my mouth. It is good. It is yeah. good. Some even aspects of within Christianity would say, you know, the the goal is to attain a higher sense of spirituality so as to somehow free us from this body because it's yeah. weighing us down. Yeah. Or popular culture, which, as you said, doesn't value our bodies highly enough, even if it comes off as an obsession with our outer appearance. And so the Christian way, the biblical way, as you would have liked to call the subtitle of your book is, (laughs) well, not only is the the true way, but I would think, well, who wouldn't want to see it this way? (laughs) It's it's the only way and it makes sense of everything. And it is it is wonderful. It is beautiful. Mm. It fills the heart with joy. And so that's the psalm says, I praise you. He doesn't say, I praise my body because it's fearfully and wonderfully made, but I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully. So the book, as I say, is a rhapsody on the body, which means that it's, it's, it's in praise of the body, but it's not praising the body, but it's praising God. Um, for giving us such wonderful bodies and dealing with us in a bodily way. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I live long enough and there's certain me- things that are memorable. Now, normally I wouldn't quote Marilyn Monroe, no, but for most of you young people, she's just a figure in ancient history. They're beautiful, <laughs> but a very tragic woman. <laughs> and I still remember an interview that was done uh, that I saw with her in which she opened up beyond the facade. She was in her day regarded as the most beautiful woman in the world and she is outstandingly beautiful. She said about, she said, oh, and the, the interviewer said, how do you feel about being admired? What he expected was, you know, what woman wouldn't want to be admired? Yeah. What person wouldn't want to be admired? And she rather curtly said, they look at me, but they don't see. Hmm. They look at me, but don't see. Hmm. Then what do you suppose she meant by that? Well, they, they, they just uh, saw the physical sexual part. She was a sex symbol. Yeah. Uh, but a sex symbol is not a person. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasy, an idol that they projected onto her. And all they saw was that was to see her in sexual terms and in very narrow sexual terms. Hmm. And she was regarded then, and this is 
part of the feminist critic as, as a dumb blonde. You know, dumb blonde, she was not anything but dumb. And there's much more to her than her uh, breasts and her hair and her beauty. Uh, she was a witty woman, but people weren't interested in the whole of her or that part of her. They weren't interested in the way she felt, what she thought, her soul, her heart. They were only interested in her as a uh, sex symbol. Hmm. That's so sad. Yeah. They, and that deep person, when I watch you saying that, basically, no, feminists talk about the male gaze, right? Because, you know, what it, that so called male gaze does, but it can be female gaze too, is depersonalizes a person, sees a person just in terms of their sexuality. So treats them as a thing rather than as a person. Yeah. You know, Dr. Kleinig, I, I am keeping you for way longer than I had promised. So I'm, I'm hoping to wrap up our time here out of respect for all the time you've given. But I have one lingering question, which I feel will be of utmost importance to my listeners, especially in terms of life issues and caring for our neighbor. Yeah. Now, God made our bodies. And so he calls them good. What gives our bodies their value? The paradox is that in themselves, they have no intrinsic value. Now, in terms of dollars and cents, somebody said, if you render down the human body for its components, you might be able to sell what you get from it for $10. So from a human point of view, it has no intrinsic valuable value. It, it, it is valued by people for certain reasons. But what gives a human body its value is that the value that God gives it, that it is a gift of God. And it's he has created it. And even though he could do things by himself, he doesn't need any human being. He doesn't need human bodies. He's chosen to give us bodies so that we can work together with him. Hmm. He created us in his image so that we, this is amazing, so that we in our bodies reflect something of God to other people, but not just to people, but to the world around us. So if you if the closest thing in the visible world to God is the human body. Now Hamlet says, Oh, what a piece of work is man. The psalmist says, Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made mm -hmm. him, given him glory and honor, made him only a little less than the angel. That's ascribed worth. Mm. And even though we have no value in ourselves, God values us and he values contribution. So he made our bodies so that they would reflect his being uh, visibly to other human beings and to the world around us. And he, even better than that, he sent his son to become flesh and live a human life from the womb to the tomb so that he could reclaim our fallen bodies, uh, the bodies which we mucked up by sin. He reclaims 
our bodies. Hmm. And the whole life cycle, he, he redeems our whole life cycle from conception through to death. Yeah. And he makes that clean and holy so that none of that is alien to him. Hmm. All of that is drawn into fellowship with him and shares life with him. He doesn't just call us to work for him, but to be with him so that we could enjoy him and he could enjoy us. So he redeems our bodies so that they can once again fulfill that function. He remakes us in his image and his image is Jesus. So if we want to get an accurate picture of our bodies, we need to look at Jesus. Hmm. And his human body, that's what God had in mind when he created us. That's what he is doing to recreate us. And even more wonderfully than that, he transforming our bodies already now. Uh, there's two things. That, one hand, our bodies are dying. On the other hand, our bodies are coming to life for hmm. eternal life with him and the angels and all other saints in heaven. So our eternal life, which begins already now. And if we could see with God's eyes, they could see the body that God wants to make in you already now and in me. I mean, it's hard. I can see it with you, but <laughs> I can't see it with me given my age and decrepitude, but our bodies are redeemed and sanctified, made purified, made holy for eternal life with God. Mm. And that's the big picture of which, if I like our sexuality is a small but very important part that God has in store for us. So that means, as C.S. Lewis said, we need to see ourselves and other people around us. Uh, none of us has been ordinary and boring and uninteresting. We are all destined to share in the glory of God. Hmm. And it's not just Christians, but everybody. And uh, we need to see what is extraordinary and wonderful and permanent in our own bodies and in other people's bodies. We are living with people who are, we will be living with eternal people who are living together with all the angels. And so there's nothing ordinary about any human being. And that then affects the way we regard our own bodies. But it, more wonderfully, it reflects the way that we regard the body of every human being. Hmm. No matter what stage of life it is, the newly conceived infant to the corpse of a dead person, a person in the prime of his or her life, as well as a person who's beset by terrible sickness, Alzheimer's, losing their mind and losing what seems to be their soul. And boom, there's just the spirits there, they're still alive, but they've lost their bodies. They've lost their minds. They've lost their souls, their identity. They don't even know who they're. And yet, there's something wonderful. If we have eyes to see and see that person with the eyes of God. Hmm. Now, if I, can, if I can quote your book 
Um, may I? Although with I won't um, contradict you. It's <laughs> the only safe thing I can say today. <laughs> you said Dr. Kleinig, which I think sums up, especially the uh, catalyst by which we care for our own bodies and um, by which we care for our neighbor's bodies. Uh, you you say, because God values our bodies so highly and takes such good care of them, we most obviously need to take good care of them. They are given by him. They belong to him. The life of every human body is a gift from God. By creating humanity in his image, he gives the right to life of every human being at every stage of life, from conception to death and in every condition of our human existence. And then you go on to say, he obligates us to respect the life of every human body. It rules out murder, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, and any other violation of human bodies. And then you say, yet it also goes beyond that. And that's when you tie in uh, to Luther and his um, explanation of the fifth commandment, which is the positive aspect being to help and serve and care for our neighbor and every bodily need. And so just as you stated in the beginning, your goal being for this to be very practical and very pastoral, everything that we claim to believe about the body, whether it's a biblical understanding or a non-biblical understanding. So that would be every, every other lie or every other thing out there trickles down and affects the way that ideally, you know, we, we care for and support our neighbors and their bodily needs. There is no better way to say that than you said it or from scripture itself. Thank you for providing this beautiful book for us. Thank you. And thank you for you and your excellent questioning. Thank you that you are so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kleinig. Before we we wrap up, is there any pressing thing that you want to say or to share? What's most important for us, it's not just our own vision of ourselves and other people. That's important. It's not only the way we treat them, what we do, but particularly in how we do it, that we show, that we admire, value, respect every person that we meet, that we see in our ordinary everyday life, that we see the other people, the girl that's serving us at the shop, the baby that's made us lose a lot of sleep, the annoying person whom we're interacting with on telephone because we we just can't seem to get anywhere or get something done. But in every case, what we're called to do is to bring a little bit of heaven to us by showing God's appreciation of them, even when they us and aggravate us. And then to have a attitude of gratitude. Hmm. And well, I, to, uh, uh, in two ways. So Christians, I as a Christian am called to think for, for every service that they render to me, 
everything that they give me, but every service, little services, and to thank God then for every little service that every human being gives to me, whether that person is a Christian or not. In that way, we exhibit God practically, clearly, in bodily, physical terms to every person. We are, Scripture says, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, shrines of the Spirit. That means that we take God, his presence, his blessings, his gifts to every person that we meet, whether we know it or not. It's not just by what we do or say, but just by our interactions with people, we are bringing God, the triune God, physically to every person that we meet. We glorify God in our bodies. And it's not just in what we do, but if I could go back to one of my best friends who's caring for a written wife, she glorifies God by doing next to nothing, but in her suffering and act, she is bringing the blessings of God, the presence of God to every person who she who comes into her presence. So glorify God in your bodies, which are Christ. Paul says that. And I'll just say to Dr. Kleinink that you embody exactly what that is as well. Listeners do not know, but for the hour before you and I were able to record, we spent time trying to figure out technical difficulties. And you were the ever most patient person in dealing with that. And so when you mentioned it you know, a couple, several sentences ago about uh, dealing with the annoying person on the phone, I felt like I was probably the annoying person on the phone that... <laughs> <laughs> you had to, you had to, you had to wait for, and I can just attest to the fact that you and how you act and interact are that way to others. And it's a beautiful model and I'm grateful for that. So thank you. Thank you too, Stephanie. Thank you, Dr. Kleinig, of course, for giving us the honor, joining us, for reminding us of what is true in the scriptures that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and then remade in Christ. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button on your app so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. And new to us are our social media pages. So now you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. So do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. 